everyone and welcome to another Scots Wehey podcast and today I'm joined by writers David Manderson and Ricky Monaghan-Brown. Hello both. Hello there. Hello Alistair. And we're here to talk about Already Too Late, a boyhood memoir by the late and great Carl McDougall, but we'll talk about it so much more I'm sure. Mm. Absolutely. So before we get into the book, what mm. does Carl McDougall mean to you? I've got a story that I will tell out, which some people will have heard, but what does it mean to you? Let's start with you David. Well, I would like to say that Carl is one of the most meaningful figures of my life, really, because he got to know me, I got to know him, I think it was rather the other way around, he got to know me about eight years ago and really took me under his wing and he really began to sort of uh, tell me stuff and share things with me. And I didn't really know why he was doing this, but he'd read the novel that I brought out and I think he quite liked it. And he had seen in it some potential that he wanted to see developed further. And I hadn't really done that. I hadn't succeeded with that. And what he began to do was to kind of encourage me out. And uh, that that was a long process because I'd lost a lot of confidence and stuff like that. And I also came to realise that he'd done that for lots of people right throughout the writing world. Carl made that contribution pretty well all his life, at least from the time he was about 30. And he set me on the road towards finishing other things, to get involved in other projects, to becoming involved with Scottish Pen, to just just basically making a contribution in a positive and, and a strong way as I could. So he had a huge influence on me, yeah. absolutely huge. That's a recognisable story, I think, yeah. 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 Uh, Ricky, yourself? Uh, I actually got to know Carl through Scottish Pen, and um, I, th- I think as, as Dave describes, and as so many people say, Carl is this figure who brings out so much in and from people. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I went into the uh, I went into the organisation as it feels like now, just a wee boy. Uh, <laughs> and, and and here's this here's this guy who I subsequently find out because he had such a light touch. Yes. I subsequently absolutely. find out what a giant he was and who he'd worked with and all this sort of stuff. And he was always just very encouraging to this wee guy who at that point and still is nobody in particular you know so (laughs) so I was just uh, yeah just we were talking before we came in I'm Mm, I'm, I'm rambling already but Mm. the the front cover of the memoir right has this wee guy and you look at him and you you can see that he's Mm. he's a wee guy who's going to have to be able to stick up for himself and all that sort of thing but he was just also just you know again to this me a wee guy at this point coming out of nowhere just so kind as well Mm. so yeah just a multifaceted guy it's so funny you should say that because I was looking at the cover before we started talking I was kind of flicking through notes that I'd made and I suddenly noticed the shoes and they could (laughs) be said to be at the time girls shoes or at least certainly they're they're not the boots that you might think of or, or, or whatever and you think yeah this child who's on the front cover you can almost tell he's going to have to stick up for himself at periods of his life. So many interesting things in what you've said there, because in the book, I think there's a light touch in this book as well. Some very serious and stories, some very difficult and dark times, but his telling kind of reflects the man himself, I think, and I think it'll be really interesting to get into that. But the story I was going to tell was, I kind of owe Carol myself for what I do now, and, and Scots were here because I was at school in third or fourth year, I think, maybe fourth year, and lucky enough to have an English teacher who was introducing us. We'd never been introduced to any Scottish writing before. Um, she taught Sunset Song and a 
Edwin Morgan poetry and things like that. And one day she said to four of us, and I was lucky to be one, would you like to go and hear someone reading? And it was at Stirling University. I was, we were in Glasgow in Camslang. So we jumped in our car and we went to, and I don't remember any forms being signed or any of that kind of thing. It was just beautiful getting in the back of the car. Yeah. We went to Stirling and it was Carl McDougall reading from Elvis's Dead. Mm. And suddenly here was this guy, and I'd never experienced before, who sounded like me and my friends and my family, mm. reading these slightly odd stories and the impact on it. I mean, I know a lot of people will say this now, and I was lucky enough to be able to tell Carol himself in later years mm. just what it meant. Mm. And from then, I discovered Kelman and Lockhead and Leonard and all these people. So Carol is a facilitator, I think, for other people, not just to do their own work, but for other people to discover work is of huge importance. Absolutely. And it made me think then about when I did studied Scottish literature at, at Glasgow Uni, in first year, everyone got a copy of The Devil in the Gyro, the short story collection. So all these students were being influenced through his curating. Absolutely. Of, of, of work as well. And do you think he's received the acknowledgement that he deserves? Because when people think about Scottish literature still, there's other names that will come before him, peers of his. Yeah, but I, I don't personally, Alistair, I don't think he's been nearly given the credit for what he did. Um, and in fact, um, I, I was, um, if you like, fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be the person who wrote his, his obituary. Mm. I look back all through his work and I thought, I've forgotten half of this. Or I wasn't as aware of it as I should have been. Or I wasn't aware of the role that it played. You talked about the devil in the gyro. Yeah. Every school in Scotland has a copy of the devil in the gyro for its pupils. And quite rightly so. Mm. He resurrected, if you like, the short story. And he, he really, really did that because he was dealing in a culture that said, nobody's going to read short stories, so we're not going to publish them. So he brought out Words magazine, okay? Yeah. And in the first or second or third, I can't remember, edition of Words Alistair Gray, Six Letters from a Western Empire, Eastern Empire, sorry, Jim Kelman, Archie Hines, you name it, they're all in there. And these were the ones that didn't get the short stories published and he created the means for them to get published. Because he was a journalist and an editor and a, a punter of other people's work as much as he was of his own. And that's not been given, he hasn't been given the credit for that. Yeah. Really. The Word in the Stones is another one that's been forgotten. That's a big, important book in 1990. And uh, uh, painting the fourth road bridge, uh, late, later nineties, his reflections on the new Scottish Parliament and stuff like that. He was right there editing and pushing things forward for, I mean, 50, 60 years, and that included other people's careers, absolutely. And he was involved in Scottish Pen, as we've mentioned. Ricky, we maybe should talk to people, let people know exactly what Scottish Pen is and what they do. Yeah, well, uh, <coughs> Scottish Pen is the. Scottish chapter of the worldwide organisation, worldwide organisation, Pen International. Um, it's groups and chapters of readers and writers around the world, and uh, certainly here at Scottish Pen, we see ourselves as having two functions uh, in particular, um, and they lead into other functions, of course, but. Primarily, we work against uh, the. Uh, oppression of freedom of expression, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and we also work to promote Scottish literature. Yes. And uh, that leads into to, to other other work as well. And uh, and Carl really, he was the he became president not long after uh, I became a trustee of the organisation. 
and we're coming up to 100 years now. And, um, you know, Carl is taking on this role of an organisation which is coming up to its 100th anniversary itself, mm -hmm. which was founded by Hugh McDermott and uh, Compton McKenzie and, and all, all these sorts of people. Um, so, you know, we, we, have, we have a long history and uh, particularly these days we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, but Carl was in, in many ways um, just a, the, the perfect president for his time. Yeah. Because, you know, we are in uh, challenging and argumentative times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a man who is willing to take on board viewpoints and encourage people to get their thoughts out there was, was definitely important. But also someone who can stick up for what he believes in as well. And on top of that, being this important and talented figure, although mm -hmm. he never pushed that part at yeah. all. He was, he was a facilitator, as Dave says, in yeah. many ways. Yeah. 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 And that is, again, it's all in the bit. The, reading the memo, because I didn't know much about his life, and what, as it turns out, that was maybe deliberate. He kept, you know, it was only laterally that he started to... In fact, I think the opening of the book, his son is asking him, well, are you going to tell me? And, well, I'm not going to tell you yet. And that, yeah. Which is a wonderful way of doing it. He almost wanted to be pushing others forward rather than pushing himself yep. forward. And the names you've mentioned that, you know, just in passing light, go back to McDermott and, and Conte McKenzie and then Kelman and Leonard and yep. Gray and all these, yep. you know, you almost get the feeling he would much rather champion them than, <laughs> than you know, go, go into the head of that queue. But he absolutely belonged there with them. Do you think that reticence is part of why he's underappreciated in, in his own part? Yes, I think it is, because he was constantly editing as well yeah. as telling. And even in his conversation, he would let you know what was there and what was relevant and what he wanted you to know at any one time. But I read the book with similar feelings. I thought, I don't know this yeah. about Carl. And I've known him for quite a while. I said to him when he showed me a very early version of this, I said, Carl, people need to know this about you. And he took that in, but he didn't reply and say, oh, no, I don't think so. I think he had done it deliberately to create a vacuum which people would be interested in Possibly now. Yeah. Um, there were more memoirs on their way. I mean, right. this was the first. I don't know what happened to the rest of them. I'm hoping that they're somewhere on a, a computer or possibly with some somebody. There was more to come. And he told me some parts of that. And it was, it was scarily... Um, uh, it was dealing with very difficult stuff. Right. But he, he, um, he told me enough for me to know that he, what he would do with it but he was editing that too as he told me it. So he was a very, very clever man who operated yeah. on several levels <laughs> at the same time. And um, I just thought he was wonderful because I, I just admire, I came to admire him so much. Uh, in his pen role, he was just extraordinary. You know, the wee guy who stands there in the girl's shoes and is going to have to tackle the world head on. Yeah. Carl did that in the most <laughs> difficult times of some of the debates that have been tearing us apart for the last five or six years and he never once uh, failed to fight his corner absolutely. no absolutely and so we've talked about his uh, facilitating and his work with Scottish Pen mm -hmm. I was just thinking about other things like um, writing Scotland which was a television programme yeah. you know imagine getting a television programme yeah. made about Scottish writing these days yeah. and uh, I mean he did other telly he as you said he was a journalist yeah. um, um, Words Magazine which you, you've mentioned he seemed to be a collector of others as much as, as you know, his own output. You know, he wanted to... Um, uh, so it wasn't just that people said, 
nobody reads short stories, but nobody reads Scottish short stories, that's for sure, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. certainly when I was at school, that was just unheard of to yeah. be doing that. Uh -huh. So it was finding and digging to find the best of the best, and that wasn't a bit easy to do, because mm. there wasn't a lot of places to direct you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he was reading himself all the time, and I, he told me the story of how he learned to read, as it were, because he had a big sort of um, road to Damascus moment when he was about age of 30, and he decided to become a writer, and he said, I started at A, and I worked my way through the whole alphabet, and this was all the Scottish stuff. Wow. Now, this is at the time when they're beginning to set up Scottish literature departments. Yes. Other people like Douglas Gifford are negotiating within places to try and get something off the ground, and and Al, and, and, and uh, Carl was right at that moment, and he was learning to talk about the Scottish experience in a way that I don't think many people achieve. It's like, it's not necessarily flag-waving, it's not necessarily against anything, it's just about the knowledge and the richness of our tradition, which he loved, he absolutely yeah. loved. I mean, it's that idea, and I guess this is what Scottish Pen attends to, is that a country or a people are lesser if they don't know their own literature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in terms of, you know, talking about uh, Carl's legacy and, and, and the recognition of him, um, some of that will be under the radar yeah. because I think we all have this experience of when we see or read or hear a piece of art coming out of somewhere that we recognise. Mm. And, 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 and you, I don't think you think, oh, I could do that. But there's a seed yeah. that's planted somewhere in your head that says art and literature and music and cinema can come out of these places that I recognise. And the fact that Carl was putting that work out there mm -hmm. and getting the work of other people who were doing that out there will continue to have an effect mm -hmm. on Scottish culture, I think. It's that slight difference, isn't it? Not saying, oh, I think I can do that. But there's no situation that I can't do it. I've not been told I can't do it, which is, I think previously was maybe what a lot of people thought, was that that's not for me. And there to say, well, not only is could this be for you now, but it's happened in the past and we've got this huge legacy of, of literature that uh, it's, it's why I think the collection The, the, the um, Devil in the Gyro is so important because people start to go, okay, it's not just these names that are writing today that are suddenly coming through, whether that's crime or whether it's whatever, There's, this is part of a, a legacy which goes way, way back and I think he seemed to be, um, almost in the 20th century in particular, a kind of linking eras together in the way that he, he worked. Is that something that you think you would agree with? Oh, definitely. I, I think one of the... As, as I've been reflecting on Carl's life in the sort of lead-up mm. to this discussion, one of the things that really grabbed me was the um, the literary magazine that he was running out of, out of Fife, mm. which was collecting all these, you know, from where we're standing now, sort of legendary Scottish writers, together with kids coming out of school. Mm. Uh, and, and, and again, giving them this idea that you can't not do it. You know? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. And then and then getting the stuff on the TV as well. Like you see, it's very hard to imagine a lot of this stuff getting on the telly to the same extent now. But he was he was doing that then as well. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah hugely. He was, he was a charismatic man. Yes. You know, he really had this charisma, <laughs> and he was one of the very few literary people probably who can rub shoulders with television people and do it you know and the people he worked with I think it was Paul Merton was one of his right. um, producers they really liked Carl you know they really got on well with him because he was on their wavelength he was as fast and as sharp as them and although he talked about literature he could make it like 
give it like the sort of this is living, this is a live thing, and they, he could bring these all this to life for them. And I think that was why he did so well on television for such a long time. Um, yeah. You mentioned as well the twentieth century aspect of yeah. what he 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 did, uh, Alistair. I think the, it, we would need to acknowledge that there was a time when he basically got a little bit seen as part of the past yes. and seemed to move out of fashion and round about the beginning of the the the, the this century yeah. he wasn't published very much at all yeah. and he had to deal with that and he he dealt with it in a very uh, his own particular way which was to be very stoic about yeah. it and to accept it and also to keep an eye open for new opportunities and to continue to write and when he came out with in 2017 that um somebody always robs the poor and that yeah. was a real comeback but I think Already Too Late is one of his greatest books. I mean, yeah. it's, it's beyond his, his, his existence, his life, his greatest book, one of his greatest books. It, it's it's incredible. I mean, as well as being um, an astonishing story, it's incredibly well written as yeah. well. Like, you know, yeah. the actual writing of it yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And before we move on to that, I think you've got to be charismatic to hold the attention of a 15-year-old Glasgow schoolboy, <laughs> you know, who's on a day trip to Stirling, probably just to get out of the class. But absolutely. he did, he absolutely, you know, everyone was up. And he was like that in subsequent times where he, I saw him um, a few things at Glasgow Unis while I was there, uh-huh. and he would always hold court brilliant. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. he was a, he was a, he liked being on the stage. Yeah. He liked dancing. He liked food. <laughs> he liked all the good things in life. Um, he was a Scottish country dancer at one time and also a singer. You know how he partly composed the cod liver oil and the orange juice. Well, I was—I didn't know that. And I know the uh, Hamish Simlach version. In fact, there's a fantastic video on YouTube if no one's ever seen it of Hamish Simlach singing cod liver oil and the orange juice. But I did not know that was a co-write. And, and Carl, it makes perfect sense. Now that you say that. He was involved in all those scenes and everything Carl did, including enjoying food or having a good time, he did 100% all the time. So his life force was really something. And I think when he was on stage, that was he was at home. He was at home, really. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was you, Dave, or Alan Reich that, that mentioned it, but um, what makes that song almost a, a folk classic, is that it becomes anonymised. Yeah. It's it's a song you know, it's a song you hear yes. bell out in a pub yes. or your mother sings it to you or whatever. And that, that that's the sign of, yeah. a, of a great song from that genre, I think. I never heard him claim it. I never heard him say <laughs> I wrote that. He just allowed other people to say it. And he, he would have liked that an, an, an anonymity, this, the side of it, like being a folk song. It doesn't belong to anybody. It's... It is. I, mean, I think I thought it was in the tradition of the Jelly Peace song and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, and it kind of is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I am... Um, um, and also, he was a writer in residence at many institutions was, throughout Scotland. So again, that kind of teaching others, informing others, oh yeah. was right at the front. Oh yeah, he was in. I think he was in every university one with another Dundee, <laughs> Orkney. Um, he was. He was um, an extraordinarily uh, adaptable man, and everybody who he worked with liked him. And uh, people like Alan Rea have got insights into him, like are just astonishing. I mean, Alan recognises his importance. Yes. I didn't really understand all the ways in which um, uh, Carl was important until Alan in the chat, and I, or I chatted with Alan. And suddenly I saw all this other aspect of Carl I'd never seen. Yeah. So let's move on to Already Too Late, which I would say it's an extraordinary book. Um, and it's one that it seems he didn't particularly, he wasn't in a hurry to tell mm-hmm. this tale. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think he knew 
that um, one way or another this was the time of his life to tell it. Right. Um, he wrote another story at the time when uh, I remember seeing a particular sentence and it said, the protagonist says, now that he's nearing his 80th, his eighth decade, he thinks this will be his last. And I picked up on that phrase, it was written several years before Carol's death, but I think that in this he knew that, that he wanted to leave a memoir. He wanted to give, put the record straight, if you like. He wanted to also give him a, a version of his life, which is done in such a way. And I, when I say edited, not I don't mean he left stuff out, but put in a shape, in a narrative shape, of which this was the first part. And I'm hoping that other parts still come. Um, he was um, he was aware of uh, where he was in his life, and I think that resonates through the book totally. Yeah. 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 He, I, I, I think he had a, a sense of timing yeah. with respect to his artistic work. Um, and you can see that in a, in a sort of small scale in the short stories. Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, the short story form is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly you know, when, you, when you get to that last page, the last couple of pages, and things resolve. And, and you know, Carl could pull that, that sort of stuff together. And it's almost like he's applying that sense of timing in a, in a on a much larger scale mm-hmm. with this book, mm-hmm. you know the the, the the time is right, yeah. and uh, I mean, yeah, and, and his, his use of language always. Yeah, I mean the, the material he covers is dealing with some really difficult stuff. Yes, I mean we're talking about post-war pe- poverty, conditions where people died quite you know in, in industrial accidents or his father was 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 killed. Um, I think there was an implication that his father was deaf and couldn't hear the train coming. Um, there was stuff happened which um, just is horrifying and yet never do we feel so bound up in that that we become overwhelmed by the tragedy of it because this little boy has to go on and he just has to carry on with it and he, he, he becomes seriously weighed down yeah. by things like depression. But he doesn't. That's not in the book. So it's going on and on about depression. You just see this stuff accumulate and accumulate. And that's, I think, what makes it so incredible. Is it's not an adult looking back at his childhood. It's a child discovering life. As that's what he's telling. You know, like your, your father disappeared. Mm. You know, and then trying, then discovering the, what's actually happened. There's lots of bits like that where he's managed to make you, the reader, but the, the, through the, the child piece together you don't get the full story anywhere near yeah. the full story at the beginning you've yeah. got to get it as Carol the young Carol is getting it as well absolutely and all these other figures in his life just disappear and nobody talks about death you know Charlie Uncle Charlie disappears Uncle Harry dies it's like you know these these are tragedies to the boy and it expresses itself in his behavior because he he says are they dead and nobody's well. We're not allowed to talk. We don't talk about that sort yeah. of stuff. And so it's eradicated from his consciousness. So he grows up, really not knowing whether these people are are alive or or there or not. And it creates this sense of great mystery. I think in the book as well. The boy's got to piece it together for himself, and we're in that position too. I think it's an amazing, uh, amazing piece of work. The more the more I look at it, yeah. And I was looking at it again today in preparation for this. I thought the stuff I just didn't pick up on this yeah. the first time round. Absolutely. Um and um. Going through towards the last part of the book, which is the really, it's 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 a. I had to look around on the internet to see if there was ever such a place as Nerston Residential School, because um, he told me a bit about Nerston. He would sometimes tell me snippets of his life as if they were meaningful to me. So he'd often say the the words. Of course, that was when I was in Keppoch Hill Road, 
and he'd stare at me. And I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what it means. But, um, it meant a lot to him, but it should mean a lot to you. Yeah. And, and there it is in the book. And then Nerston. And um, it's just, a, it's, it's unbelievable that such a place just existed. And I, I, I struggled to, 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 to one, I sometimes wondered, was that true? But it was true because there was such a place and he was in it. And it's every bit as horrifying as he, in fact, it's more horrifying than he portrays in the book. Because more of that, I think, was to come in, in other parts of the, the, the memoir. I, and, and Ricky, when you read it, did things that you knew about Carl start to make more sense? Or did the man himself, it was more, more revealed to you in that way? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, you know, we, uh, we talk about Carl being, um, you know, a great facilitator. Mm-hmm. But, the, and, 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 um, I remember when I was was first asked for a, a quote uh, for one of his obituaries. I think I think the one Dave did actually um, coming after his death. I I, I I I came up with something about um, you know my my own personal reflections on Carl about you know just what 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 a, what a genuinely nice and kind mm. guy he was. But I think we ended up changing the quote just a little bit because that didn't capture. I mean, you can't capture the entirety of the man. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But 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 it, it missed out some important stuff, including that steeliness. Yeah. That we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and and that steeliness that sort of came out of these, yes. um, these experiences, um, came to be, I think, important not just in the writing, but in the way he dealt with people. Mm. Um. His memorial service, mm. I thought, was an incredibly and uh, and and also the um, the posthumous book launch. Yes. They, they were both incredibly moving because people were just lining up to talk about how Carl had taken the experiences that he describes in this book and hopefully future volumes. And he took those and he moulded them into tools to help other people who were having a hard life as well. Yeah, yeah I think that's so true. There's, it, it's a bit the you can't help but reflect on your own childhood in particular, but life in general. And the little things that to a child would be huge, like a trip to the zoo or a fight, or, you know, that uh, I think most of us would have put such things to the back of our minds. Mm-hmm. But to the child at the time, these are huge, mm-hmm. you know, occurrences. Yeah. And we're there with him, you know, he yeah. watches a fight in the close and it explodes over an argument between Stalinist um, <laughs> policy and uh, nationalist belief, and somebody gets serious doing as a result of it in front of the child, and blood is spattered, and yeah. it's pretty, it's graphic, and this is exactly what it must have been like. You know, these kids playing near canals and being warned by the granny, don't go near the canal, and then one of them at the end of the book, unfortunately, mm-hmm. something bad happens to them, and, you know, I mean, this was, this was really observed life. But I'd like to give you an example of Carl's steelness in relation to myself, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Because I was working with him as a teacher and uh, I kind of let things go because I was kind of getting a wee bit fed up and I was going, ah, you know. And he, st- st- he stood by me one night and he looked me right in the eye and mm-hmm. he had eyes like needles when yeah, he wanted yeah. to be. And he <laughs> said to me, I will never let my standards go. And I thought, right, I, I get it. Okay. Yeah. And I pulled my socks up. You know, because I thought, yeah. I don't want to look like an idiot in front of this man. You know, uh, I really don't. I want to live up. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to disappoint him. And from that point onwards, I began to learn a lot more about the dedication and about the 
oomph you need to mm. be a writer of any sort, you know. And yeah. he had that in spades, and he passed yeah. that on. He yeah. passed on that steel. He really did. Yeah, I mean that, that's, and I think that steeliness absolutely you can see from the incidents in the book. Ricky, you mentioned the short stories, and it's 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 different tales put together, isn't it? It's a, t- a telling of these tales and weaving them together rather than <laughs> any kind of overarching. Uh, desire to make a bigger point or anything like that he leaves the reader to kind of you know make their own points about what's happening yeah. he's telling the tales yeah yeah i mean that that, that, that that's cork you know he, he has this um incredible facility with words yeah. you know which you know he he's clearly as, as, as dave has been alluding to he's put in the work to such an extent mm-hmm. that um i was looking over his uh final President's report to Scottish Pen, and it's just beautifully, just beautifully written. You know, but by the time he was reaching this, you know, later period of his life, I think it just, it must have just been automatic for him to just be writing beautifully. And I'm thinking, I can't stand up in front of our AGM next week and. Relate this screed of garbage after you know after yeah. Carl's been mm. you know he covered three or four pages just of talking about what we've been doing in the past year and just brilliantly expressed yeah. and again not being didactic about it mm. you know bringing you in mm-hmm. always yeah always well yeah. he he worked as a journalist for a long time and he reviewed for the Herald for fifteen years yeah. every week a different book a new review. Uh, he he worked for some rigorous rigorous people, yes, and he lived up to what they expected and a bit more. All those people were very impressed with. They loved Carl. I mean, everybody in the in the, the media and the newspapers, other novelists uh, of of his generation, are talk about him with nothing but admiration. Uh, he and he deserves every bit of it, you know. But, and yet we said at the beginning that he seemed to stand apart. Deliberately so, I think. Oh. And I think this book kind of shows that as well, that this yeah. is someone apart, and maybe for very good reasons, at a young yeah. age. It never struck me at all that Carol would have German connections at all. And and then and yet that side of the family, the German side of the family, at that time in Britain, it would have been so difficult yeah. when that comes across. Yeah, yeah. the Kaufman uh, name and... Uh, uh, I think I think Jewish heritage as well. Um, I, you know, he he was aware of that, and that comes across in the book. I remember him speaking of it, but I didn't really get it at the time. But when I read the book, I saw I, I understand, of course, the war and German prisoners and some local worthy coming round to to keep an eye on them in case somebody's spying within the family and just poking their nose in. This would have happened all the time, and it happens on different levels to Carl in yeah. his younger years all the time. Um, and uh, it's, it's a vision of Scotland that I've not seen anywhere else, really. Mm-hmm. And in no other book have I seen anything quite as um, realistic, is that the word, as to what it must have been like for ordinary people during the war, yeah. uh, which he was certainly, he experienced, obviously. Yeah. And also, uh, the style of it, it's in, I've read quite a few memoirs recently, and some fictional, but... For instance, I've just finished reading and reviewing Eleanor Tom's mm. new book, Connected mm. Tissue, mm-hmm. which is very much based on her own family and, mm. and family life and everything, but it's a novel. Yeah. 
you almost feel with this that it could be another because as you said there's parts of it you go did that happen is that true you know and I think maybe the reason that he didn't write I met one of the reasons maybe until later in life is because he quite liked that about himself that he yeah. could tell tall tales as well as Absolutely. tales oh no he, he could he could move from fiction to non-fiction he was really a master when you think think of all his, his achievements and all these things so I mean the word on the stones is something that's absolutely factual and somebody described it to me the other day as a kaleidoscope of Glasgow it's like all these different fragments all put together by big teams of people round about in a year of culture but but this book is something entirely different it's like this playing with the form you know this is memoir this is fiction this is non-fiction this is then this is now He's toying with all these things all the way through, you know. Uh, it's a really masterly work, I think. Ricky, when you did you know he was writing uh, memoirs? I did. I did not. I did no. not know that he was writing yeah. these. Um, and I mean, obviously, they're a gift us. And, and, and Dave's Dave's touching on something which I think is very interesting about the memoir form. And you've touched upon it as well here, and talking about Elner's work, mm-hmm. and you know how. So much of a writer's fiction. I mean, where else can it come from? It has to come from some aspect of experience. And I think that's well recognised. I think sometimes what we don't recognise quite as much is the extent to which a successful memoir is a literary piece of work. Yes, I agree. You know? Um, And and, and, and to write write a, a book like Carl's hopefully first volume of memoirs and sort of have these people to sort of move through these walls between something that's overtly literary if you will but also being talking about these very real and effective experiences it's it's a real tightrope I think Uh, and you have to be I think in, in, in order to be able to pull off a work like this you have to be Ah, a skilled reflector on your own life, but mm. also a skilled writer. Now, I hesitate to say literary writer because I don't want to freight this yes. too much, but but you have to be like a good writer and, and the journalistic aspect as well that Dave talks about. Yeah. To be able to pull all these threads together to create this is a, it's an important and, and affecting um, yeah. task. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's a case where perhaps, once again, labels aren't, necessarily very helpful to mm. see one's another one you know mm. because memory itself is going to play tricks and yeah. coming up with its own fictions and to go back to such a young age yeah it's almost it's almost uh, bound to happen i think it is i, I remember so many bits where he told me bits of this and he said my grandfather always <laughs> used to say you are how and i thought and of course his grandfather spoke gaelic mm. so alan reich said this is um set the, the the post-launch thing he said carl was linked to the western isles as well and yes. he was also linked to glasgow and he was linked to fife and he was linked from all different parts of scotland and his interest in accents i think stemmed from the fact that he knew all these different accents and moved about a lot First time I've ever knew he moved about as much as he did was reading this book. Yeah. But going from Fife to Glasgow with a Fife accent and a German name cannot have been easy. And it is not easy. No, I mean, yeah, going from Fife to Springburn in particular, you know, I mean, you're really kind of what a change that is. But what, one City of, of Dreadful Night, I was thinking about. <laughs> I think so. But one of the pleasures I had was just listening again to his 
talents with accent and his with speech. And I know I, I noted the boy with the part with the little boys listening to his parents' voices. Mm-hmm. I think the voice meant a great deal to Carol, and he listened to things very very closely. Different accents, different intonations, different ways of speaking, and the way he takes the the dialogue out of inter- inverted commas uh, and marking it out from the narrative is interesting to me because it makes you read things very very closely and. He, he, the voice meant a great deal to him, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that move at that time, it's, it's there's so many things in the book that with reflection you go, yeah, that's got, that would have shaped anyone and it yeah. really shaped him. And like you said, it means it's a book which you almost immediately empathise with because you think about the major things that may have happened in your life. Again, often maybe that weren't talked about when they should have been talked yeah. about. Yeah, totally, yeah. Um, so many silences surrounded yeah. him. So many ways in which uh, things that should have been talked about weren't talked so about. Many mysteries. Mysteries. Um, just the 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 uh, child guidance aspect of it. I think one of the chapters towards the end is called Child Guidance. It couldn't be a more ironic title, uh, but that was the official name. And uh, the way in which the teachers begin to monitor his work and begin to mm. say, you know, why haven't you completed this bit? And I noticed you started this, Carl, but you didn't finish that bit. And you begin to get the sense of something building again. And again, reading it today, I saw that very clearly. He's leading up to something. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was really on something there, and he knew it. Yeah. And, and you were saying that this love of writing, this almost obsession over writing, I mean that's in it as well even in the the titles of the chapters you know this isn't just a throwaway thought he's really thought about everything that goes into this and um and 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 the and the language, yes. Um, you know, no, I, I, the language is just wonderful. Yes, yes. and and I, I think that does partly come out of you know moving around uh, the Gaelic heritage as well, and all this sort of stuff. And of course, he was a he was a promoter of the Scots language as well, yeah. Yeah. and then sort of moving among these languages, and I think sort of getting to see how the way in which you express yourself mm-hmm. changes the story you're telling. Yeah. Mm. Um, is something sort of comes out of Carl's work. He he, he has a he has a facility that I think comes out of the, the recognition of the way words and language work. And the language again, it's never heavy-handed saying, "Oh well, this should be allowed and this wasn't allowed" or any. It's done through how his mother spoke and yeah. the things that he remembers and the way she said it. How yeah. speaking in certain ways was part of her identity, and when she didn't do that. She, she wasn't whole, if you mm. like. You know, these things are shown rather than told. Yeah, well, it's the way they speak to each other, yeah. isn't it? The granny and the mother are yeah. just fantastic. You know, they're so uh, extraordinary people. You know, and it's done through their their dialogue, really. Um, and um, uh, I, throughout the book, all these people come alive again. I love the 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 meeting of the the gypsy people outside uh, Oban. The just the kind of. Uh, the, the description of them and the way they um, lived. He, yeah. he lived to see times when people lived next to the road, uh, getting cans of water from the, the, the river and boiling them up. And he noticed all this at the time. Um, and these memories, sometimes he shared them with me, as I, as I said. He, um, he'd come out with these things, but you wouldn't know what he was relate, relating them to. <laughs> This is the first time I've seen them all put into the, the jigsaw puzzles being put together. So, uh, so had you heard some of these stories? I had some of them, yeah. Uh-huh. I had some of them. I'd say Keppel Hill Road was yeah, meaningful. Yeah, yeah. But as I say, I didn't really know what he, what he meant. But um, 
I, I got it this time. But other things were open. Um, Fife was very important to him. King's Kettle in particular. Um, he was, I later learned he was a member of the folk club up there and he was something to do with, that was how the, the, the cod liver oil and the orange <laughs> juice developed. Um, and he uh, mentioned stray bits from his life all the time. He also went to Paris when he was a young man. He didn't mention that. That may come into what was yeah. going to be a, a future memoir. Around about the time when, you know, uh, the sort of left bank was lively and people who were kicking about were like the memories of Sartre and people yeah. like that. Carl was there <laughs> walking along those bookshops and drinking in what he could. He told me he was very lonely. He never met anybody there. He was mm. never been so alone as he was at that time because he just went there. And then he spent a long time in Birmingham for some reason just to get away. Then he came back. So, so this was all before he decided to be a writer. Yes. This was him living the life before he decided, I'm going to write it. He was fascinated by what he was reading, I think. And he Paris would obviously have been a place he went. Everybody went to Paris at that time. Yeah. Um, Birmingham, uh, I think it was just a, uh, to get away from Glasgow and because it was a big city and he possibly knew people down there. In fact, I think he knew... Um, now, Kirsty McCall's father, McCall, Ewan, Ewan McCall. McCall yeah. He knew Ewan McCall very well. Right. And he told me Ewan McCall said to him one day, what are you going to do with your life then, Carl? You've done all this. Is this what you want? Is this enough? And Carl went, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I mean, come on, you're, you're doing fine. Yeah, you're doing fine. But come on, what's your plan? What, what are you going to do next? What are you going to be? And he went, oh, right, I better think about that. <laughs> so he was mentored himself by other people. Yeah. And that probably fed into his own mentoring. It did. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And were you surprised, Ricky, when you read the book mm. about any aspect of it? I mean, it's got so many aspects to it, about the way it was written or the oh. stories that came out. I mean, everything, because, I mean, I I, I came into Carl's life at a, a much later yes. period. Um and you know, so Dave has heard had heard snippets of these stories before, um, but because of the way I found Carl dealt with people, which again is this sort of oh, passing on of the baton, the sort of you know he he had been mentored mm -hmm. and he mentored, which which he did automatically mm -hmm. with almost anyone who came into his life, yeah. which is. But again, with a lightness of touch. Yeah. So everything here was was fresh to me, and um, you know the the you know the the the, 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 the tragedy of, of of so much of his life, and yeah. and and the, and the stuff that he had to to fight through to become this person that you mm. and McCall would say. So what are you going to do? And then actually think I should do something. Um, mm. It's 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 all fresh. And again, partly because of this idea of how effectively he brings you into the child's mind, yeah. which is just an astonishing achievement. Yeah. Yeah. And you write all those things there, but the, the way it's written, because there's a lot of humour here, and we should make that mm. clear, mm. and you almost have to work through <laughs> a lot of the descriptions to get what's really going on. This is no misery memoir at all. No, no. You know, it's absolutely not. It's, no. a, it's actually a life-affirming read. Yeah. Particularly since you know we know the man who went, came from this childhood yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had to face things that uh, most of us don't, but he um, certainly went about facing them with 
a determination and a courage that I've not seen in many. Hmm. Uh, he wasn't a very big man, but he was uh, he was strong. <laughs> you know what? I met him a few times, not that often, but you're right. But he appeared to be a big man. Yes. You mm. know, the way he had that aura about him. He did. You know? He did. He, he wouldn't back away from a confrontation and he... I mean, he came from a he came from a hard, tough time, and he he worked through tough professions. Com, the competition and the Daily Express would have been fierce, um, but yeah. he certainly made himself a reputation. In fact, he told me he became Bud Neal's uh, copy taker of choice. <laughs> Bud Neal asked for him because he made a point of. Taking reading it back to Bud Neal and so on. Is that the so, cartoonist? Cartoonist, yeah. yeah. So Bud Neal said, Yeah, I want that young McDougal, I want him to be in the phone for me. And he would dictate whatever the cartoon was saying that day. And and the thing that Bud Neal liked was Carl's ability to take down the dialect which Bud Neal wanted in his mm. cartoons. So he really went for making something of himself through journalism first. He met Alistair Gray at that time. Yeah. They hung about that bar up by the Express, the, um, the Arlington. Yes. And they, they met there. Now, Carl would have known who Alistair Gray was, mm. but many many people didn't then. No, you know, no. He wasn't a well-known person, but they got to be friendly. And I was recently looking at A Life in Pictures again, you know, uh-huh. the Alistair Gray's book. That history of, of Carl and Alistair and Archie Hind and all their daughters and all their sons and all the family... All around, that was how it was. That was a, a, a scene of friendship and domesticity and people helping each other out. And, you know, it was that. But it was also consciously, on Carl's part, and I'm sure, and on the others, more. It was an artistic movement, if you like. Yeah. Beginning of something. Mm-hmm. Putting together all these different talents. A Scent of Water, which is a, a, a book, um, you know, I, haven't, I, don't have a, I don't have a copy of it. I wish I did. But it was illustrated by Alistair. Mm-hmm. And... It's these 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 are works of art, you know these these books now, you know. Um, it, he he was consciously building something all his life, and he helped other people build it too. You know, to be a fly on the bar when those folk But he's never mentioned with in with the Hobsbawm group. Was he ever involved with that kind of writing group? No, he members? was never a member of yeah. the group. Um, I don't know why. I don't know whether he didn't want to be. I don't know whether he was, wasn't invited. I really don't yeah. know. Um, because of that, he was very friendly with some of them. He was very friendly with Alistair. He was very friendly with Tom Leonard. Yeah. Um, he, know, he knew Jim Kelman very well as well. I think others who were in that group he, he knew less well. Mm-hmm. But he, he was following a different path. One writer that was really influential and whom he, he kind of became a friend with was Ian Crichton-Smith. Yes. And he really engaged with Crichton-Smith's stories. And reading Crichton-Smith, which I have done to some extent, you know, I can see why, because there's similar interests and similar, maybe even similar issues in there, yeah. you know, but in a different culture. But then part of Carl was from the Western Isles and he, he had insights there as well. So... He was exploring, you know, so many different things and he was weaving them together in so many different ways. There was the Glasgow thing, yeah. very strongly Glasgow, and then there was all these other things as well. And they all show in his work, I think. And it strikes me as we're talking that this a view that we have of him as a kind of outsider, maybe that was deliberate and that allowed him to... Because when you're part of a group, then... Some people will judge that you're not part of them. You know, yeah. you're, this belonging to one thing might mean that you're not open to belonging to another thing or whatever that might yeah. be. Whereas with Carl, who ploughed his own furrow and accepted everyone and was interested in everyone, yeah. as far as I could see, 
from Scotland as a whole, which I guess wasn't happening that much back then either. Mm. You know, there was someone that travelled and educated and mm. all these things right across the country. Mm. He maybe saw that as nece- necessary for who he was. Do you think that's maybe... Well, I, th- I think... <laughs> I mean, then again, we've just listed he was part of Penn and he was part... But, but you know, he always did seem to, as a writer, kind of stand apart. As a writer, yes, exactly. Um, because, I mean, many writers w- w- would say that, that, that that's a key part of the role, you yes. know, being able to stand back yes. and, uh, and be able to sort of evaluate and transfer that to the page. Um, and I was reading... Again, before I, before I, I came to talk to you all um, about the part that he played in the Glasgow's Glasgow uh, exhibition, and apparently coming out of that, there was uh, some problems with with some of the other folk who were part of the scene yeah. at that time, and um, presumably that's because you know Carl as a person who had you know something of this outsider yeah. view of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's almost something that's necessarily going to come out of that because he has his interpretation he has his view having seen the things that he's seen and put himself in the position to be able to look at things with that gimla eye yeah yeah these these sorts of things are going to arise yeah i think he was an outsider i think he kept himself outside certain things he went so far and then he he was decided he, he was always going alone mm. as well. And again, I think that the roots of that are in the memoir, I mm. think, you know, absolutely, you know, yeah. being taken out from his family, being people either being removed from him or him being removed from people, yeah. and he kind of, uh, and that's those stories about him going to Paris and other places yeah. on his own, yeah. it, it absolutely makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the loneliness in childhood and it carries on. Yeah. There's no way forward for Carl except the one he chooses. Yeah. And I think it's always been like that for him. You know, that's like that picture of the, the boy in the front. Yeah. You know? Now this is probably a huge question, but could you kind of just talk a little bit about what his legacy has been? Let's start with you, Rick. Well, I mean, he is... He comes from that sort of very fertile period. You know, the, the people that we're talking about, the names that we're talking about, yeah. including Carl's own, own name, yes. are hugely important. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much not from that generation. But because of the work of Carl and people like Carl and the, and the work that Carl was facilitating and putting out into the world means that you have people who are creating new Scottish work, fresh Scottish work, because that work existed in the first place. I mean, he has planted seeds that will continue to grow throughout Scottish culture. And that's that's something I think that we need as writers, as artists, as as people and as citizens. Um, So to have played a key part yes, in, in, in getting that stuff out there and then also you know the, the, the Scots language stuff that kind of keys in there as well um, there, we will be continuing to read work that exists because of what Carl did and that is better because of what Carl did be, for a long time because of all the things that Carl did yeah. and um, yeah I, I just feel very privileged to have had a to be, have been able to spend a small amount of time with him yeah. 
And, and David, what, what do you say? Well, it's such a huge question because <laughs> he had um, such an impact on myself personally. Yeah. I miss him hugely. Uh, we all do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of, that is the legacy. That's one of the part of the legacy. We're well, going to I miss think his all, I mean, sometimes I would bump into him on the street. <laughs> And you're just always pleased to see it. And he seemed always, now I don't know whether he was or not, but he always seemed pleased to see you. you well, know? he would be. He would be, because he's delighted to see coincidence and meeting <laughs> yeah. and all that sort of warmth. That's yes. all he's all yeah, about. Very, exactly. Um, as far as his legacy goes, you know, beyond my own personal thing, I think his legacy is uh, emerging now. Um, the impact he had on other writers is extraordinary um, and you know you could work through them and name them but that's not really how, how you'd want to do it. He, the, he had um, a profound influence on influential figures and sometimes uh, I was astonished by who he had influence on. For example I went once up to Moniac Moor mm-hmm. and there on the wall of Moniac Moor was a small picture and it showed three people standing it. One was Cal McDougall, the other one was Alison Kennedy and the third was Janice Galloway. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know they knew each other yeah. but they knew each other and what Carl, uh, Carl's impact was always to encourage people to, to do their best. Yeah. He kind of didn't take any prisoners in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we all felt that impact. And you had to go sort of, oh yeah, I'd better do that then. And he, was, he, was, he had that impact in everybody. He didn't accept, just do enough. No, you've got you've to do well. You've got to write well. And the, the evidence is there in that, in that, in yeah. that book. Um, it, I hope his legacy lives on because we forget so easily. Yes. You know, I hope, we, you know, we have this tendency in Scottish literature, every literature probably, to wipe it off. That doesn't matter. We've got new things coming through today. He got a little bit of that in the part of the early part of this century yeah. and came has come back with his repost, uh, which is these books, I think. And I think it's important to recognise that Carl's legacy isn't just as a writer and within the writing world. The things that Dave's describing right now, he did with people personally. Yeah, There yeah, are people yeah. whose lives were changed for the better. Mm. Nothing to do with art, nothing to do with literature. Their lives were changed for the better because Carmel Dugo came into their lives mm. and helped them and encouraged them and challenged them. Mm. And in many ways, I suspect, well, certainly for those people, yeah. but, in, but in, many, in many ways, that's his most important legacy, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, going back to um, his book being in schools and his being taught at, at university and his teaching at university, his influence on, so I mean, Scottish literature is still a fairly small world, you yeah. know, it is. And a lot of the people that are working in it, including myself, uh, were certainly influenced by, by Carl, no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, he knew what he was doing and he was out there uh, saving people. He really, really mm, was. Yeah, he was looking for those that needed saved and he found them. Yeah. And I was delighted that he did that for me. And that compassion and kindness yeah. is in the book as well. Yeah. As I say, this, is, this book could have been so different in another writer's hands. I know that sounds daft. <laughs> it wouldn't have been another writer's book. But say. Uh, it's so Carl McDougall, yeah. <laughs> and that's the great thing about it. That's and right. I guess at the end of the day, that's what a great memoir should be. It should be that this tells us about the person and more. Yeah, Not yeah, more. yeah. It's the ultimate Carl McDougall. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe if a second volume does come, and let's hope it does, mm. uh, we three can get together and we can talk about that as well. But uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come along and chat about Already Too Late, a boyhood memoir, and the great Carl McDougall. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Alison.